Heavenly Father, prepare us for your word this morning. Help us again as a community to dwell together in unity, uh, knowing that we live under you, you being the head of the church. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. May be seated. Well, how do you know if you've been become part of a clicky group? You know, you've kind of become snobby about the group that you have joined or been in for a while. I I take this test to know when you've started to become clicky. It's when you start throwing around acronyms. That's when you know that you become clicky in a group. So when you throw out words like SEO, Search engine optimization, which I had no idea what it was, but hang around these marketing people and they use words like SEL. I'm like, okay, that's clicking. Or you might use a word like we can. Okay, I have no idea what we can means. Someone threw that at me this week. It means the Wisconsin Education Career Access Network. So if you're a teacher, you know that abbreviation, we can. Or maybe if you're one of those KC finance people, you, you use these words like ROA. Again, something that's been used. I have no idea what people are talking about. Return of assets. Okay? Or maybe you're a homeschool person and you use the word CC. Again, a word I had no idea what that meant, but people throw it around. Classical conversations. A homeschooled group. Maybe you're a gamer and you use words like RPG. Role-playing games. Again, I'm like what are people talking about? Or you're a mom and you use the words like FTM, first time mom. I've heard people say that about other moms, FTM. <laughs> or maybe you're a teenager and you text a lot and you were, use an abbreviation like ROFL, something I received by text a little while ago. I had no idea what that meant. It means rolling on the floor laughing. <laughs> I mean, these are just ones that I've heard. But I'm sure that you have acronyms that you use, buzzwords, to make you feel like you are part of an in-group. Well, today, we are going to see some insider words. And they were words used by people in this church in Corinth to make them feel like they were part of the in-group. To make them feel like they were part of the right click. They were words like mature and secret, and spiritual, and wisdom. Now these words are not bad in and of themselves, but they were used in this church to cause division, to make people feel elitist, and more importantly, the use of these words led people away from the Lord. Well, Paul decides to kind of use these words and turn them upside down to point to what true wisdom is. And in his unconventional way, Paul uses these words to show the paradox of the cross. These are the three points I'm going to make today. So if you're going to hear anything, this is what you want to hear. If you're going to write things down, you can write this down. Here it is. The unconventional and paradoxical way Paul talks this morning. Number one, there is power in weakness. 
Number two, wisdom does not come from or for the wise. Number three, self-improvement doesn't come from ourselves. Power and weakness, wisdom that does not come for or from the wise, and self-improvement that doesn't come from ourselves. Well, let's see what Paul has to say. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 all the way through 16. This is a doozy, so please pay attention as we go through it uh, this morning. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The word of the Lord. For just joining us, welcome. We've been going through a letter that was written in 55 AD to a church about this size in one of the fastest growing cities in the Roman Empire, Corinth, which is in modern day Greece, on an isthmus connecting northern and southern Greece. I feel like sometimes I have to take a step back as we go through God's word to realize what are we exactly doing here on Sunday morning? Studying a letter written 2,000 years ago. Do we just like studying esoteric things? Old letters? Ancient history? It's our thing, right? It's a cool thing to do as the church to study these old letters. Just like some people like Froyo, some people like Zumba, 
Some like people like to do LARP events. We're just into studying old books. Right? No. The church isn't just some Facebook group. In fact, we believe what we are studying was written by the Lord. The one who created the universe, who knows all things, who has an eternal plan, who has a plan to save us. This is how God has chosen to communicate to us, his people, humanity, through people like Paul in a letter to a church in Corinth. I understand what I just said might sound dramatic. Some of you might not believe this is actually the word of the Lord. But I think I need to mention it. Because what we're saying this morning and what we're teaching is that we don't believe this is just a piece of wisdom within the collection of all wisdom of the world. No, we think this is actually the word of God that teaches us what it means to be saved, to have a right relationship with him. We don't think this is just one piece in a pluralist world that you can just jump onto what you like. No, this is what actually God says. And this is how we have right relationship with him. Now I say that because that's the same thing happening in Corinth. There's all this wisdom, all these ideas that people are saying, I can just pick and choose what I would like in this pluralist world. But here Paul is trying to insert, no, this is the wisdom of God that we are giving. It's not too far off from where we are today. Well, so far what we've seen in this church in Corinth is much divisiveness. And you see that Paul, the one that has planted this church, started this church three or four years ago and now is away, has heard about all the issues going on in the church through different people. Specifically, it's mentioned through this woman, Chloe. And before Paul gets into all of these issues he hears about in the church, in the first four chapters, he wants to deal with the heart issue of this divisiveness. Why is there this disunity in the church? He started at the beginning, concentrating on what has been going right in the church. That was our first week. And then the last two weeks we saw he tries to center on the centrality of the cross and how that unites the people. And then today we see he's going to focus on what is truly godly wisdom. Well, let's look, shall we? We're going to look verse 1 through 5 first. We see that Paul starts with this. Lots of first-person pronouns. I, I, I. Paul, again, is speaking, too, about how he came to the church and planted the church. And he's contrasting the way that he came with other people in the Roman Empire and how they teach their philosophies, their ideologies, their worldviews. And Paul is saying, I came in a different way than these other teachers came. I did not come in entertainment, or just being informative, or just being good at rhetoric. 
No, he's saying, I came in weakness. Now, he mentions this again in 2 Corinthians. And there's much speculation about what Paul means about his weakness. Some might say it's a physical malady that he might have. He had some eye issues. Some say it might be a depression that Paul was struggling with. I don't know what it is. I could speculate about many different things. But I think the main point is this. Something limited him from an outside perspective. That people saw this is not just what came from him, but they were drawn from not just his rhetoric, his abilities, but by God. In fact, the way he looked, or the maybe way he talked, or the maybe he was as a person, was not all that appealing. And it wouldn't have drawn people to his message. You see, Paul is saying that the message of the gospel works through weakness. Truth didn't come just through human ingenuity, but it came through the power of God. And then he talks about this fear and this trembling. I think it's the idea that he was trembling because he was weak or anything like that. I think it means this is the state of his being. By being under the majesty of God. Here is one that has been touched by the Lord, that has seen Jesus, that understands this power of the gospel, and he is in awe of it. In awe of the message of the cross. And because of that, that is what he communicates. Only the cross. Doesn't mean he's not he's anti-intellectual, that he doesn't use rhetoric, which he does throughout the epistles. That he doesn't do, do cultural analysis, which he does throughout his epistles. That he doesn't use logic, which he does throughout his epistles. No, what he's saying is that his main argument, his main point is not the philosophies of the age. His main argument is that God has worked through the story and the person of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, and his resurrection. That is the centrality of the message. Nothing more, nothing less. I'm constantly blown away by how God gets a hold of people. I went to a church in college in Northern Virginia, led by a guy named Lon Solomon. Lon Solomon was a dynamic speaker, had a very large church. And you know how he came to know Jesus? He was a hippie. He walked out of a store one day in Washington, D.C., and there was a street preacher. You know, the typical kind on the megaphone. Signs and all. And right there, Lon Solomon heard the message and gave his life to the Lord. I sat down with Bill Lenz when I came to Appleton. And I heard his testimony. I didn't know it about how he was watching Billy Graham on a television screen. And right there in a cabin by himself, listening to Billy Graham on the TV, he came to know Jesus. I sat down with Perry Vanderloop, the head of a store in Appleton, to hear his life and his testimony. He told me how a man came through town carrying a cross, who carried it through the United States, by seeing this man, 
he came to know the Lord. I've heard many stories about people that have come to know the Lord through preachers who have come and listened to those preachers and said, they're not very good. But people still came to know the Lord through them. Or through moms and dads who did not always use eloquent words, but seeing the faithfulness of their parents came to know the Lord. What a great encouragement this passage is. That God uses our weaknesses, even our hard times, our sicknesses, even our feelings of being inarticulate, to show his power and to work in people's lives. It's not having all the smarts. That's what Paul is saying. It's not having it all together. But instead showing the power that is in the Lord, not in us, that changes people. Just that word, power, right? It has such a negative connotation. It says that idea of force or coercion. The Roman understanding at that time, the meaning of power is having armies to be able to exert your beliefs or your thoughts. But here Paul is saying there's a power even greater that's in the gospel. We have a picture of it actually in the gospel. In Luke, we have a Roman soldier, right? The picture of power, a centurion. And here the centurion is sitting under the cross. A picture of foolishness, right? Of weakness. And when Jesus died, what did that centurion say? Surely, this was the Son of God. What a contrast, right? The picture of power of Rome versus the picture of weakness of the cross. And that centurion saw where the real power was. I love the work, the movie Inception, right? You guys seen that movie Inception? Right? You think about it, it has lots of action scenes and fighting and all those kind of things. But the fighting doesn't happen in the real world. Where does the fighting happen? In the mind. In dreams. Right? And all that war in the dreams actually... Ch- changes people greater than any fighting outside can change, right? Because it can change an idea in the mind to change someone to think radically different. You gotta see the movie sometime. Inception. The idea something is conceived in in our minds to change us. I've seen the same thing through the power of the gospel. I've seen angry men that have been brutal to their families and to others, not changed by force at them or anger at them, but instead to be changed by the weakness of the cross. That actually in that weakness was power to change the mountain of pride and anger in people's hearts, to move that mountain in people to change them radically. That's the power of the gospel. A power greater than any strength of this world that can change a person's heart. If you've been around me long enough, you know I pray a prayer similar many times. I say, God, give us the faith, the faith to move mountains. 
And the truth is, do you know what mountain is greater and bigger than just a physical mountain? It's our hearts. Because they're dead. But by faith in the gospel, we can change people's hearts. And they can be moved. The greatest mountain. Well, the message comes in weakness, but also comes a wisdom, not from or for the wise, verses 6 through 9. You can see Paul starts this with a great word, yet he's changing it. However, but you got to see something different here. And what he's saying is there is the wisdom of the age, which I just talked about, those buzzwords that were used among the sophists and the people in Corinth. What is wisdom, the wisdom of the age? And he says, we didn't give that wisdom, but we gave the wisdom of the gospel. Again, here is loaded inside language. Words that cause division, like mature and secret wisdom. And really what it's doing is it was showing, here's, people are saying, here's the difference between me and other people in the church. I have wisdom. I have the secret wisdom of something. I have um, this maturity. And it was causing this division between people saying, oh, I'm mature in the church. I have the secret knowledge and you do not. But Paul's flipping it. And he's saying the difference in the wisdom that I am talking about, in the wisdom that the gospel gives, is not between believers, but instead it is a wisdom that's different between those who believe in the gospel and those who do not. Paul's saying the people that are mature, the people that have been given the secret wisdom, the wisdom from the beginning of the age, this is those that believe in the gospel. See, the gospel hasn't made maturity Understanding the secret wisdom about who is smart, who's paid the most for a certain teacher, who has arrived in society. No. He said this. He said, maturity and the secret wisdom, it comes not from anything that we can do, but what God has done. In fact, if you use these methods of wealth, or secret knowledge to try to find the wisdom of God, you are missing the point. In fact, that divides people. Paul is saying the cross does something different. It emphasizes that all of us, all of humanity is under the same message. That we can't see the wisdom of God through our own wisdom. But we have to see it through his. See, this understanding, he's trying to put it in basically a syllogism. Um, oh, sorry, I'm not getting there yet. Get there to verse 10, sorry, skipping ahead. This understanding that people are outside of Christ, these people are doing is that you're saying, this person, I'm wiser than this person, or I'm smarter than this person, I'm more mature this person. But we have an understanding that we're all under the cross. It will help us to have a new understanding of how we relate to others. Especially people outside of Christianity or outside of the gospel. 
And this is what's done to me, is that it's allowed me to realize that, guess what, there are people wiser than me that are not Christians. Aaron can attest to that, that there are people wiser than me. I make many immature decisions. And my girls can say there are people more mature than me because they've been around me and all the jokes that I tell in my household that I'm not the most mature person. In fact, I have come to the reality that there are people that are not Christians that know Scripture and can interpret Scripture more adequately than I can. See, Paul is saying, in the Gospel saying, This is not what it means to have the fullest kind of understanding. Wisdom and maturity instead comes from believing and acting on God's revelation. That's where true understanding comes. True maturity comes. True wisdom comes. Is acting upon his revelation. There can be people outside of the gospel that are mature, more wise, and maybe even know scripture better than we do. But that is not what makes us wise or mature. I had the opportunity in college uh, to have a visiting professor come. One of the wisest and smartest and probably using the biggest words that I've ever been around. He quoted philosophers and literature people ad nauseum. And his name was Cornell West. Maybe you know Cornell West, maybe you don't. But he is uh, a professor at Harvard. uh, And... uh, is uh, a guy that has looks really academic, big beard, smart guy, big hair. He just looks like a philosopher, right? And I remember sitting in one of his talks, and it was the time of Promise Keepers in Washington, D.C. And it was really amazing to see many different cultures coming together, praying together, acknowledging Christ together, crying and calling upon God to come upon our nation. And I remember what Cornell West said about this. He said, here they are, crying and calling upon God to solve their problems. What fools. I realized then, here is the philosopher of our age, a wise man that knew literature backwards and forwards. But we lived in two different worlds, him and I. And it wasn't the wisdom of the age that would make him see that the answer to our problems was God. I love what William Barclay says. Nothing beyond the physical life. There were no needs other than material needs. So said the philosopher of our age. Many think that there is nothing more than the satisfaction of sexual urges. And no wonder they cannot understand the meaning of chastity. And then they rank and amass material things. And no wonder if that is what they want, they cannot understand generosity. See, if there is never a thought beyond this world, they can never understand the things of God. 
You know, I love that. I, I quote like Cornell West and William Barclay, and some of you go, okay, thanks for quoting philosophers of our age. How about for me, the practical person that doesn't maybe listen to those people? How about the ones that give wisdom to our everyday age today? Like Captain Obvious from Hotels.com. <laughs> I saw that recently. It was a commercial, and here's two women in hats with their crying kids. And there they are at the playground flipping through pictures on Facebook. And they flip to a picture to a friend in a warm place on vacation. And what do the two women say to each other? They say, why is it she is there and we are here? And of course, Captain Obvious says, contraception. Do you see what the wisdom of the age does? This is true wisdom. Vacation. This is true wisdom. Not having kids. Or maybe true wisdom is having kids. And jealousy about one or the other. You see, we live in a different world as Christians. Or we should. It says, this is not the wisdom of our age. We live in a different paradigm. We don't live in jealousy that someone's down south right now, baking in the sun. Or someone doesn't have kids, or someone has kids. Or someone has money, and someone does not have money. No, we live under the authority of the cross. That is the world that we live in. See, here is a church full of division. Fighting for who is mature, who has the secret wisdom. And Paul is shouting. He's pleading. He's saying, if you are a Christian, you have access to God. To his knowledge, to his wisdom, to his plans, through the spirit that has been given to you. And here you are fighting of who has secret wisdom and who is more mature when you have been given it all through the Holy Spirit. And he explains this in verses 10 through 16 in a syllogism. Syllogism is like this. It's to prove something. If I said this, I said, all the breed women are beautiful. Premise one. Aaron is a breed woman. Premise two. Therefore, Aaron is beautiful. Right? There's the conclusion. That's easy, right? Not embarrassing her. She loves this, right? <laughs> well, Paul is making the same kind of arguments. He's saying the spirit searches the depths of God. Who knows a person except the spirit of the person? We have received God's spirit... Therefore, we can know God when those that have not received the Spirit cannot know God. See, Paul is clearly creating a difference between who is a Christian and who is not. Human things are only known to the human things are only uh, human things are only known to human knowers. 
Divine things are only known to God's spirit. Therefore, there is a heavy line between humans and divine things. Things of God are outside the limits of human knowing. You see, one of the dividing words in this church was the word spiritual. And people were saying, I'm spiritual because they had some ecstasy, a moment, some experience. And because of this experience they had, this spiritual experience, they started to deny the body. They said, the body is not important, only what I'm experiencing in this spiritual realm. Therefore, what they said is, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. Therefore, I can be as licentious as I want to sexually. Some people went to the other end and said, the body is totally wicked, so I should not do anything with my body. And they abstained from sex totally. You see, this is what's, what was happening in this triumphalistic kind of message about the Spirit. But Paul saying, this is not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that comes through the Gospel. See, the Spirit that I'm talking about gives us the mind of Christ. It's not defined by factionalism. It's not defined by removal from the body. It's not saying that the gospel that I preach is foolish. Instead, it has the mind of Christ, of sacrifice. The mind of Christ living in this world. You see, this is why Paul uses such strong language in verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. People are harshly judging Paul and his message. And he's saying, you cannot judge me because I have been given the spirit of God. And that is the power I'm speaking through. Oh, I could give a very, very long sermon on verses 10 through 16. And I know churches that camp out in these passages and probably speak for weeks upon it. It's very sad that this passage, verses 10 through 16, have endured such unfortunate history and application in the church. It has spurned such things as the deeper life movement, the idea of second blessing, or the idea of having spiritual elitism. And it's a lot because of this verse, verse 15. The Spirit judges no one. I have the Spirit in me. I can do whatever I dang well please. The Spirit speaks to me so I can speak the way I want to. Please hear me. This is the exact opposite of Paul's intent within the context of this passage. He's trying to remove spiritual pride and division. See, the Spirit's power is not having something other um, than what another Christian has. No, it's emphasizing the power to transform lives, to reveal God's wisdom, to minister in weakness, to affect the holiness in the community. See, the purpose of the Spirit is not to transport one outside of the present age but it's to empower someone to live within this age and in this world. 
I truly believe there's nothing new under the sun. Many people ask me what kind of church we are a part of. Are we a spirit-filled church? Yes, we are. We are a spirit-filled church. Are we a charismatic church? What do you exactly mean by that? I think I'm pretty charismatic at times. Are we a cessationist church? Do you believe, I, I think that there's not healing today or that God doesn't work through his sovereignty? If you mean by that cessationist, no, we're not cessationists. All of these buzzwords that we like to use to cause division. And it's very interesting how these very ideas have been repeated through history. Right here in Corinth, as we get to chapter 12 and 13 and 14, we'll dive in deeper in that. But these same things happened even in American history. In the 1740s, there was this amazing movement of God in New England. The Great Awakening. You know, history, you probably have read about it. There were many conversions. And it was very emotional. People were weeping. People were crying out. It was amazing times. And churches were full. And people were moving from alcoholism and giving that up to abuse, to repentance and coming to the Lord. But of course, what the enemy loves to do is it creates division when amazing things are happening. Amazing things are happening in Corinth. And the enemy is creating division. And what happened in the Great Awakening is that some people were saying that those who did not experience that emotional ecstasy were unconverted. And those were the new light people. And then there was this other side called the old light people. And they were saying that people that had these experiences were actually possessed or this was a fake work of the spirit. And it caused this division among this amazing thing that was happening in America. Thankful for one person that came into history at that time, Jonathan Edwards, who had charity for both sides. Again, you can see a guy that is living what Corinthians is talking about. And trying to understand people from both sides, the old light and the new light. And one thing that Edwards said was this. One of Satan's favorite strategies was to stimulate religious experiences in extreme ways that were caricatures of the real thing. And through that, trying to discredit all of the work of the Spirit. And so what Edwards was trying to do is how did you know that it was a truly a work of the Spirit? He wrote a famous book called Religious Affections. And one of his major points is this. True converts, true people that have received the Spirit are like fixed stars. While imitation conversions were more like comets that blazed brightly for a while, but eventually burned out. See, we're bringing up the idea of the Spirit and the Holy Spirit, and I think there are two equal and opposite errors. 
One is that we see the emotion and the powerful experiences that can happen through conversion and the Spirit coming upon people, and we can throw it out and say, no, that can't be the work of the Spirit. The others can be this, that we are so in love with the experience that we receive in conversion or by the Spirit than we are about our love for God. That we're more in love with the event than the actual change of heart. And Edwards pointed out, how do you know the Spirit is real? Paul's talking about the same ideas here. One, you start to have a sense of love and beauty of God, realized in the cross. It moves you away from selfishness into loving others and loving God. Your fixture is upon Him, not yourself. Second, you start to have Christ-like qualities. Edwards liked to call it lamb-like qualities. You could really just call this the fruit of the Spirit. Patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Those things start to manifest in you. Third, you start to live out Christian practice. You start to live out the moral law, the Ten Commandments, honoring your father and mother, not lying, not coveting, living the Christian sexual ethic. Those things start to be living out in your life. When the Spirit comes upon you, you will live in that way. See, Paul's saying, if you are part of the church, if you are part of this Christian gospel thing, you have received the Lord in his knowledge, and it will transform you and change you. So that idea of division and the idea that I'm better someone than someone else, that I have secret knowledge in someone else, that is not part of the spiritual life. Instead, it's this humility. This edification of God, this patience, this kindness, this Christian practice. How do you get it? How do you get this spirit-filled life? Is it a secret handshake that we give out in the back at the end or maybe the membership class? Is it knowing secret, certain acronyms? If you know what PCA means, then you've got the Spirit of God in you. Is it being able to understand this whole communion thing, right? Is this some secret wisdom that's here? But this is not an insider thing. I think verse 12 talks about it very clearly. It says... That we understand the things freely given us by God. This isn't done by a handshake. It's not done by knowing secret acronyms. No, if you want to receive this, it's a power that comes in weakness. 
is a wisdom that came from what people call foolishness to us sinners. It was a change in our lives that does not come from ourselves, but comes from the Spirit freely given to us. That's what this table is. That's why we come forward to receive a gift freely. We are saying to one another when we come forward, this is not from myself. It's not from my own wisdom. It is from God's wisdom to me. And he gives me freely the power through the Holy Spirit to live a transformed life.